<clears throat> so we're starting a new series um, in honor of Lent. We're going to be looking at some some things during Lent. I've called this uh, I've called this uh, series "Rethink" for reasons that hopefully will become clear. Lent is the season in the church year uh, that is the season of solemn repentance, and uh, that's that's. Um, a mouthful, so let's take it, let's take it one by one. So, so we're going to be looking at Lent as a season of solemn repentance. Now, what is solemn? I think most of us know what solemn means. It's gloomy, right? Actually, actually, it may be gloomy or it may not. Solemn means serious. And gloomy is sometimes associated with that. If, if the doctor comes and gives you one bit of news, it may make you gloomy. But, Either way, you want the doctor to not be pranking you. You know, you don't want a doctor who's, you know, winking and, and kidding about what he tells you. You want the doctor to be serious, whether it's good news or bad news. So it may make you gloomy or it may not, but the doctor should be solemn. He should be serious about what he's doing. And then he may or may not make you gloomy with what he tells you. So Lent is a season not of gloom, but of seriousness. But that still leaves repentance. So what is repentance? How many of you saw the, the article in the paper? Uh, Chris Thompson talked about uh, church lingo, the, the jargon that, that Christians use in churches. All right, a couple of hands. So he talked about how churches sometimes have their own little little uh, language that no one can really quite understand. Repentance is an example of that. You know, no one goes to work and says, "Hey, um, did you get the uh, did you get the spreadsheet done?" and Coworker says, "No, I'm repenting of spreadsheets." You know, no, no one uses the word repentant. You're, you're, you're at school, and you know, you, you get a D on the test, and you say, "I need to repent the uh, the Civil War because clearly I don't I don't have the Civil War figured out." We don't use the repentant the word repentance except in church, so it becomes this kind of church jargon. And in the case of repentance, it's actually worse than some of the examples that that Chris gave in his in his uh, article because you can you can at least make sense of it if you kind of take it. And you know, kind of unpack it bit by bit. But repentance is based on a mistranslation. Just because in the in the nature of of church history, starting when the when the Bible was translated first into Latin and then into French and then into medieval English, it was mistranslated. Because what if you look it up in the dictionary, if you look up repentance, what repentance to to repent means to make. I mean, sorry, to be re- penitent. So there's a slide. Can you turn to the next slide? So, uh, oh, I've moved it too far, too fast. Let me let me say why we have to talk about repentance first. So repentance, why do we talk about repentance? Because Jesus talked about repentance. There we go. Jesus talked about repentance at the very beginning of the Gospels. Jesus, the first thing Jesus typically says in the, in the Gospel is he says to repent and believe the good news. So we see that at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. That's very characteristic. Jesus talks about repentance all the time. So if Jesus is talking about repentance, so should we. But we need to look at the context. It says Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And then he said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus put this word repent in the middle of this kind of good news sandwich. Right? He came talking about the good news. He said, repent and believe the good news. So if repent is in the middle of two good newses, it can't be bad, can it? So is it really going to be gloomy if it's good news? So Jesus talks about repentance. But the problem is we have this mistranslation. We've got this translation that says to repent is to be penitent. And penitent's not a word we use a lot, but we know what it is because we have places where we put people who are supposed to be penitent. We have penitentiaries, right? So people who are repentant should be in a penitentiary, right? 
That's, that's kind of what the word actually means. It means to be sorry. It's actually related to the word uh, for being punished. So we have this idea that to be repentant, to be doing this thing that Jesus said we're supposed to do, is somehow related to Alcatraz. And that's all a mistranslation. So forget that. Forget everything you ever heard about repentance and penitentiaries, because it's just not true. Now, the actual word in the Bible, before it got translated or mistranslated into Latin, it was actually a Hebrew word that meant to turn around. You know, you know this sensation, right? You're trying to drive somewhere. You're not familiar with that part of town. You miss your turn off. Now you've got to go around, you know, three sides of a block or something. You've got to go further ahead. You've got to make a U-turn. You've got to fix the mistake you've made. Um, so you've got to turn around. Um, it means when you're in a hole, you have to quit digging. You know, step one is to, is to quit digging. Now, when the, the translators of, of the New Testament um, uh, were trying to, trying to access that, when they were trying to say, uh, there's a whole bunch of people all around the Mediterranean Rim who don't understand Hebrew. And um, they never will understand Hebrew, but they understand Greek. Greek was kind of the trade language. Everybody understood at least a little bit of Greek. They said, how can we get that idea across in Greek? Well, because the Greeks are all about philosophy and, you know, they've got the, the you know, people who think about thinking. Um, the word that they came up with was to change your mind. And I was trying to think, is there a picture that would illustrate changing your mind the way a U-turn signal illustrates that? And this is the best I could come up with. This is, this is the way kind of the Greeks thought about repentance. They said it's kind of like the mahout who's driving an elephant. You know, the guy who sits up on the top and, you know, you go to Thailand or something and they're, they're doing some construction and instead of a bulldozer, they've got an elephant and there's a guy up on the top whose job is to pick up these logs and move them over there, something like that. And if he decides that's what he's going to do, he knows how to persuade the elephant and the elephant does what it does because it knows where the food comes from. So the elephant will in fact pick up the logs and move them over there. But it's all up to the driver who decides, you know, somebody told me to move some logs today. So the Greeks had this idea that your mind was kind of where everything else started. That if you could persuade someone's mind to do something, to think something, to think a particular way, then the rest of them followed. So they said there's no point working on your behavior if your mind isn't in the right place. So when the Greeks were trying to get at that turnaround thing, they said the first step, even before you decide to turn around physically, is to say, oops, I missed my turn, to, to get your mind clear on what it is you're trying to achieve. So the Greek word is to, is to, um, is to change your mind. So that's kind of uh, the, the proper understanding of repentance, and it means to, to rethink. And that's, what, that's kind of what my whole series all during Lent is going to be. We're going to be talking about rethinking things, making U-turns, rethinking things. We're not going to be talking about penitentiaries. We're not going to be talking about being gloomy or being sorry. Um, now, if you've made a really terrible mistake, you know, if you realize the next turnoff, the next U-turn is seven miles ahead of you, you may be sorry and say, oh, I feel like such a dummy for not me. You know, I wish I'd got that turn right. We can be sorry, but sorrow is not the essence. And it's never been about punishment. So, you know, penitence and penitentiaries, that's the wrong image. The right image is is a U-turn or rethinking something, changing the way you look at something. So that's what we're going to be looking at. And today, just to kind of hopefully uh, uh, briefly, but we're going to kind of set the table by looking at one of the areas that I think we most need to repent. And this may not be you or may not be you today, but there are occasions, I think, when we need to repent, to, to rethink God. 
because there's this image in our culture, and it sometimes percolates back into the church, and so church people sometimes have it, which is that God has a personality disorder. Let me illustrate it this way. This is a painting. Can you? Yeah, this is a painting by Thomas Cole. It's it's illustrating the event we read about in the, the passage from Genesis today. It is the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the garden. And so there's this idea, there's this good God who can make a wonderful place like Eden. But he's also an angry, bitter God who has kind of a one-strike policy. And if you mess up, then he kicks you out. So the next picture shows what happens then. You get kicked out of the garden. There's this image we have that we pick up, I think, really more from the culture than from the Bible, that says God has this kind of one-strike-and-you're-out policy or my way and the highway, this God who who takes no guff, who who says you have to do it right, and if you mess up, I'll punish you. So we have that image that we inherit, um, not, I think, from from the... Uh, from the Bible as much as from the culture. But we point to places in the Old Testament and we say that's the God that that we think we understand from the Old Testament. But then we turn to the New Testament and we get a completely different picture of God. Instead of the angry God that we get in the Old Testament, we get the nice God. We get Jesus with a child on his lap or a sheep on his shoulders. We get the happy God, uh, the God who who is much more forgiving, the God who the God who uh, dines with sinners and tax collectors. And so we have this idea, well, what's going on? How can, how can God be so different? Does God have some kind of a personality disorder? Is God one way in the Old Testament and completely different in the New Testament? And I think the answer is that no, there is just the one God. So what I want to do is I want to look at um, what the Bible actually tells us about God. I want to rethink what it is we believe about God. So... If you've got um, your scriptures, if you could turn to the um, the passage from John, uh, we're going to look at the Good Shepherd passage. So Jesus tells us he is the Good Shepherd. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. The, shepherd, the Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So this is, again, this is the nice God. This is the happy God, the God we like. And he says, the hired hand who is not the shepherd does not own the sheep, sees the wolf, and runs away. The hired hand basically says, you know, this is a job for me. You know, you pay me and I do it, but you're not paying me enough to go fight a wolf. So I see a wolf and I'm out of here. Jesus says the hired hand runs away because he does not care about the sheep. It's just a job for him. But he says, I, I, Jesus, am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. In fact, he says, I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also. He says there's other sheep who don't have even a hired hand, sheep who are just in total distress. And he says, I need to go get them too. I need to bring them into this fold. Why? So there will be one flock, one shepherd. They need a good shepherd too. So that's the New Testament God, the good God, the happy God. But look what Jesus says next. He says, for this reason the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. He says, there's no difference between me and the Father on this. We are in total agreement about what the problem is and what the solution is. He says, he says, the Father loves me because we are in agreement on what to do about the sheep. He says, I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. He says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. 
Where do you think I got that power? Do you have that kind of power? You don't have that kind of power. I do. Where did I get it? He says, I have received this command from my father. My father came to me and said, there's a problem with the sheep. Here's what I'd like you to do about it. And here's some power you can have in order to achieve that. Jesus says, there is no difference between God the Father and God the Son. They are of one mind. There is no difference of opinion about the sheep or what to do with the sheep. He says, if you think that there is somehow the Old Testament God, the mean and angry God, the my way or the highway God, and the loving God of the New Testament, you need to rethink that. And in fact, about 20 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to a church in Colossae, and he said in it, he said, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He said, you can't see God. It's the nature of God. We can't see him. So we don't know. When we have trouble in our life, where our mind naturally goes is we say, well, this is coming back on me. It was that thing I did yesterday or the thing I did in third grade, and now, God, it's finally catching up with me. God is punishing me. God is sending me to the penitentiary because he wants me to be penitent. He wants me to be sorry about the thing I did. And Paul says, put that to one side a minute. First, we need to talk about this. He says, he, Jesus, is how you see God. He says, you're right. You can't see the invisible God, but you can see Jesus. And remember, when Paul's writing this letter, there's actually people who walked around with Jesus. There's people around that they could say, tell me about Jesus. Tell me what did he look like? What did he wear? Paul is saying, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. There's nothing you could ever want to know about God that you can't see when you look at Jesus. So he says, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Again, the salvation that Jesus won for us is not something where Jesus went off script and said, you know, I know there's an angry God who wants to punish you, but I'm going to save you. In him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or on heaven. So whatever whatever images you have, whatever images that, that come to mind when things are tough, and you say, this is coming back on me, you know, that I have this kind of wheel of destiny model of God, Rethink that. Rethink your understanding of God because there is no difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And yet, and yet, if you're like me, you say, but yeah, what about that Old Testament God? I mean, why does he act that way? So let's look at that. If you look at Genesis 3, so so this is on page 3, so... Um, uh, you can find it in your pew Bibles. I love Genesis. You can find the pages, the first couple pages, very easy to find. So um, uh, what does he say here? God has just found the man and the woman. Their hands and their mouths are sticky with the forbidden fruit. They've been caught. They're busted. So God tells them. He tells, he tells the serpent, you are cursed. And he says to the woman, from now on, Childbearing is going to be a lot harder for you. And he tells Adam, the ground is cursed because of you, and as a result, farming is going to be a lot harder. I don't know who got the better part of the deal there. I don't know if it's better to be a, have a hard life as a farmer or to be having difficulty in childbirth. I will, uh, 
I will keep out of that decision. But God says that. God has just said that to them. And then Adam says, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. So apparently Adam thought, well, it may be hard for her, but it's hard for me too as a farmer. So she's going to be the mother of all living. And then it says, God drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is the image we have. We have the the God who curses the serpent, who curses the ground, who says childbearing is going to be hard, who says farming is going to be hard, who drives them out of the garden. But did you notice what we skipped? Right there. They've been caught. They're dead to rights. They don't have a, they don't have a hope of weaseling their way out of this. And what does God do? It says in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for the man and his wife and he clothed them. He said, are you kidding me? Fig leaves? You're planning on wearing fig leaves? You're really planning on fig leaves? God says, here, let me make skins for you. God makes them clothing. Clothing will work. Fig leaves won't work. God says, here's what I'm going to do. So even right there at the scene of the crime, God cares for them. God's about to drive them out of Eden. It's true. But before he does, he says, let me make some clothes for you. Because God drove them from Eden, but he did not drive them from his sight. He did not drive them out of his relationship. God has always been in relationship with us. There is no difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And if the events in our life, if the things going on in our life make us think that maybe God is angry, maybe God wants me to be sorry, God wants to send me to the penitentiary, God wants to punish me, what the Scriptures tell us from one end to the other, all the way through, God will never want to destroy the relationship he has with you. God will always want to build on it and make it better. So if you have that idea, the only application for this whole series is to rethink it. Think it over. Change what you believe about God. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for Jesus who makes clear to us things that that might be mysterious otherwise. We give you thanks that you are a God who does not drive us from your presence, only from the garden, and are at work to bring us into your holy city. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us, you would help us to resist the the temptation to think of you as as a schizophrenic or having some kind of personality disorder, a God who wants to punish us but wants to bless us and so forth. Help us to see you as the God you are, a God who loves us and wants to spend eternity with us. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.